announcement, and you'll be wanting to go to Deuteronomy chapter 32 um, for our text today. Um, but before we get there, I want to say something about uh, this announcement, which is our statement of faith that I think you've heard me, some of you have heard me speak about it before. Our, our denomination of Sovereign Grace Churches um, put together an updated and revised statement of faith. Here's a print copy of it. There's 40 of these out there in the lobby if you want to take one home if you're here. You can also go to your email, your e-bulletin that was sent out yesterday, and go to the link there under the quarantine resources. It says Statement of Faith. You can click on that, and you can read it online and uh, download it if you want to. Um, so I just want you to know that that Statement of Faith is available to you, and then say a few things about it because our sermon series is going to be based on it. This new edition was seven years in the making, and it was the product of every eldership in our entire denomination, that's 80-plus churches, that had input into this statement of faith. There's a committee that was kind of organizing it and spearheading that, but it had the input of every eldership. And that is, I think, an amazing testimony to the grace of God that we have this kind of widespread involvement and, and zeal <laughs> for the doctrines that connect us. Um, we really don't know of any other denomination in recent history that has done this. Um, I was talking to a friend who was an elder of another de denomination, and he told me that their denomination was also revising their statement of faith but it was because they found that many of their pastors didn't believe it anymore. And so they were trying to pare it down to what they could all agree to. Well, we were going in the opposite direction. We're taking what we had and strengthening it and making it more nuanced and, and more articulated and expanded to address some things that didn't need to be addressed in the past. And so we felt that that was necessary to to strengthen our churches, and to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude 1, 3 says. There's tremendous pressure um, in our society to move away from the historic Christian faith and the core tenets that have always been believed. And so we feel like a statement of faith being revised and updated is one way that we can put a stake in the ground and say, you know, here we stand. And all of our elderships have uh, agreed. They, we all subscribe to it. This is what we believe. This is what we teach. This is what we contend for. So we want you to know uh, what's in there um, because you, many of you joined our church, and so it was under a certain statement of faith, and now we have this new one. So you'll need to know what's different, how is it worded differently. Uh, you shouldn't be surprised by anything. If you, if you agreed before, you'll agree with this also, but there are some new things, and they are worded, I think, in a much better way. Um, but you need to know what's in it. And so that's why we're going to have a sermon series now on the statement of faith. We're not preaching the statement. We're preaching the Bible, but we're preaching about the topics that the statement of faith addresses. And so that'll take us about 13 weeks because there's 13 sections. There's 39 subsections, but we won't go into that much detail. Uh, 13 sermons, I think, will, will be a good introduction. And then we hope that you'll read 
either the, the online version or pick up one of these print ones and follow along in that as we're going through this sermon series, which the sermon series is called What We Believe. So for that, let's begin with the first topic, which is the scriptures or the doctrine of the word, which is our understanding of the Bible itself. Uh, and for that, we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 46 and 47. We'll begin by reading in verses 44 uh, for some context. But I invite you to turn there and uh, follow along as I read that, and then we'll pray. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Let's pray. Now we ask, Lord, that because you are a loving God who loves your people, <clears throat> that you would open this word up to us. Show us again your goodness, your authority over all the universe. Show us the content that you delivered to Israel then and you deliver to us again today. Um, increase our faith. Help us, Lord, to stand firm on all that you tell us and to see it as um, coming from the good, loving, wise God that you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with a question. Is there any source of information that you can completely trust in the world today? <laughs> Think about your favorite news source or blog or author or public figure. Is there anyone in that, that category that you can completely trust no matter what they say? A source that you know will always tell the absolute unbiased truth about everything that it speaks to. No hidden agenda, no misinformation, no deception. Is there a source that possesses such extraordinary intelligence and wisdom that if that source gives advice or instructions, you would follow them without hesitation? Because you know it's got to be right. Is there a source that carries not only those qualities, but legitimate authority in your life to such degree that to ignore it would have serious negative consequences for you? Does that describe the sources of information that speak to us every day in the world? I think if we're honest, we have to say no. No, that does not describe them because the source would have to be perfect and nobody is perfect. And yet our passage today makes the claim that there is such a source. And the claim is that the Bible is that source. Moses says in verse 47 that the words he was speaking were no 
empty word for you, but your very life. That's a statement that implies that these words in Deuteronomy, and, and we'll make the case that the words of all the Bible are words that are absolute truth, that are extraordinarily wise, perfectly wise, and which carry legitimate authority in our lives, even, even compelling and comprehensive authority. They are your very life, Moses says. Here's how we say it in the Statement of Faith. We receive the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments as the perfect, infallible, and authoritative Word of God. In its original manuscripts, the whole of Scripture and all its parts is inerrant, meaning without error in all it affirms. In other words, we believe that you can and should completely trust in what the Bible says in everything that it says. And we'll see why that matters, that you have that conviction as we go through this. So let's start with a little bit of context. The setting of Deuteronomy is Moses speaking to the people of Israel next to the Jordan River. God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, brought them to the border of the promised land. They, would, they wouldn't go in, didn't believe that they should go in there. Giants in the land, let's not go in there. So they wander in the, in the desert for 40 years as God lets that generation die off and a new generation rises up. And this new generation is ready now to go back and go into the promised land. They're about to cross the Jordan River. And Deuteronomy is the last speech of Moses to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. And his speech ends with this command. And this is the first thing we're going to consider. The command was this, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today. Take to heart. All the words, not, don't leave out one of them. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today. Let's just camp on that for a moment. What does it mean to take something to heart? Well, it means that it deeply affects you. You believe it to be true and you act accordingly. So suppose you have money problems and a friend says, you know, you should really have a budget <laughs> and stick to it, Right? And then if you change nothing, and if you don't do anything different, you keep spending all of your money, despite that advice, you haven't taken it to heart. If you had taken that advice to heart, you would change your spending. You would have a budget. You would be different. You would act differently. Because taking something to heart means that you believe it to be true, and you act as if it's true. It changes the way you live. It's what James 1.22 says concerning the whole Bible. He says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. To hear and not do is deception, self-deception. It is not taking it to heart. And Moses wants Israel, take these things to heart. Hear what I'm saying and let that change your life. Believe it. Develop a conviction. And then live out of that conviction. And he describes what that looks like. He says, you, uh, take, take, uh, take to heart these things so that you can command them to your children that they may be careful to do 
all the words of this law. So you're not going to command your children something that you're not convinced of. Uh, you first internalize it and say, this is important and I want to pass that on to you. I want to make sure that you have this same conviction. And then he says the goal is to do it. Not just to believe it to be true, but to do it. That's what taking to heart means. So if we're going to accept this Bible on its own terms, it means that whatever it says about us as human beings, whatever it says about the world, whatever it says about God, whatever it says about how we're to live, that then becomes your conviction. And that is what you will now live out of. You will do something with that conviction. There's this humble reception of the words of the Bible as truth that we should build our lives around. So that means if we treat this Bible the way it tells us to treat it, we won't just let it be an accessory to our lives. You know, something that you pick up once in a while um, to get an inspirational word or, or, you know, because it's a habit. No, it's, it's something that we go to and say, I, I, I need to know what's in here. This should change my life. It has a certain authority about it. It has a life-shaping impact. But now here's the question. Why should it have that kind of authority? <laughs> why should we take it to heart? Why, why should we actually develop our convictions from it and then live differently because of it? Well, Moses goes on to tell us in verse 47... Here's what he says about the words with which he was warning Israel. It is no empty word for you, but your very life. Now, that's a bold statement. Those words mean what I'm saying to you is not empty, meaning it's not without substance. You can't ignore this as of no consequence. No, in fact, these words are your very life. You ignore these words to your peril. That's what Moses is saying. To ignore these words is like ignoring the, dire the directions on a bottle of pills that you need to take a certain number of, a certain number of times in order to live. <laughs> if you ignore the, the words on that pill bottle, you may die. Um, to ignore these words is like ignoring the directions on, on, on a sign telling you, how do I get out of this building in case of a fire? You ignore those words to your own peril. Moses says, that's what these words are like. They're not empty. They're your very life. They're the key to living. They save your life. That's what Moses says about them. Now, how would that land on you if you heard that from a politician? They gave a speech laying out their plans and their opinions, and they close with, these words are your very life. Right? What would we say? It's a, you arrogant fool. <laughs> you know? Who do you think you are to give your own words that kind of weight and authority as if, like, I cannot live without you? You know, we would say that's an egotistical maniac, and yet Moses said that. So why don't we just write him off, write off the whole book of De Deuteronomy and throw it in the trash, because it was just Moses, and who is he, right? Well, here's why we don't throw it in the trash. It's because they're not ultimately Moses' words. 
They are God's words. That's what the Bible says about them. At the beginning of Deuteronomy, it says this, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. He's speaking what the Lord gave him. The Lord God of Genesis 2-4, who made the heaven who made the earth and the heavens. Deuteronomy is the word of God who made us and all things. Moses was just a messenger. He was a prophet. He was somebody who was communicating on God's behalf what God wanted us to know. But Moses isn't the origin of these words. God is. So the authority of his words comes from the fact that God himself is the author, the true speaker. This means that we have a God who communicates to us through people, and now we have these words written in a book that we call the Bible. And it isn't just Deuteronomy that is God's word, but it's all 66 books of the Old and New Testament. All of it is the perfect, infallible, and authoritative word of God that we're to take to heart. This is what the Bible says about itself. Let me just reference some other texts that say this. Jesus said in Matthew 5.18 that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. The law is shorthand for the first five books of the Bible, sometimes refers to the whole Old Testament. But it means here, Jesus means here, you can bank on what Moses said. You can bank on what's written in this book down to the last letter, the iota, the dot. <laughs> it's all trustworthy. I should add that this is true today of the original manuscripts, which we don't have, but we have thousands and thousands of copies over the centuries that were made of the originals. And, but 99% of, and, uh, well, and of those agree completely, but there's like 1% where there's differences between copies. We call those variants. And so we know that over the centuries that there are some areas where we're like, we're not sure if that's the original or not, but out of that 1%, none, nothing that's essential to Christian doctrine, what we must affirm to be true, none of that is affected at all. And there are good reasons for deciding which of the variants is the right one. So we can still believe that the, the Bibles that we have today, though they're centuries and millennia after the originals, are still essentially what was in the originals. We can have a high level of confidence for that. We can say, along with Jesus, yes, not an iota, not a dot will pass away. We know that God gave us his word exactly the way he wanted it. Some more texts on this. Jesus said in Luke 24, 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's referring to the Old Testament, the whole thing there. The law, the prophets, and the writings of which the Psalms was the biggest book. So he's referring back to the whole Old Testament, and he's saying, everything that's written in there about me, and there is a ton, because all of it points towards him, he says, that's all going to be fulfilled. Why? Because this is authoritative. This is true. You can bank on this. That's how he read and understood the authority of the Bible. 
You can look to over 400 places in the Old Testament where it says, thus says the Lord by some prophet, and then goes on. Thus says the Lord. That's a declaration. This isn't just what this person is saying, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or somebody like that. No, this is what God is saying. We have God's words here. Peter says of the Old Testament in 2 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's assigning the Holy Spirit as the true author. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. God is the source of it. They're talking about the whole 39 books of the Old Testament. Bottom line, the New Testament says the Old Testament is God's very, very words. They are your very life. So then we ask, okay, what about the New Testament? What about those 27 books? The Gospels, the Acts, the Letters, the Book of Revelation. What does the Bible say about those? Are they also God's very words? And yes, they absolutely are. The New Testament is centered around the person of Jesus Christ. And who is he? He's described as God become man, Emmanuel, God with us. In Matthew 1.23, John said he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So in Jesus, God isn't just speaking to us through people like Moses and the prophets. Now he comes to be among us to deliver his word in person. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. So in other words, Jesus is God's authoritative word to mankind. He himself is the revelation of God and God's will and God's message to humanity. Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, he is the center of what God wants to communicate to us. Unlike the prophets of old, Jesus didn't just come with God's message. He came as God's message, having God's own authority in himself being the Son of God. And that's why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The scribes could quote things. Jesus originated things as the authority, as God. So his words are God's words. His life shows us who God is. What does that have to do with the authority of the New Testament? Just this, the New Testament is the authorized record and explanation of Jesus' life by His commissioned messengers. Jesus gave this promise to His disciples in John 14, 26. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This means that after his departure, Jesus would send God the Holy Spirit to ensure that the apostles, like Peter and John, would faithfully write down the record of his life and his teaching and explain the significance of it. 
The Holy Spirit would superintend the whole process so that when they wrote the history, when they wrote the letters, when they wrote the prophecy in Revelation, that would be exactly what God wanted written. That was his promise. These men would also be writing things that were breathed out by God. They would speak from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Peter could say of the Apostle Paul's writing, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. The other scriptures. Peter says Paul's writings are scriptures, just like Old Testament scriptures. Why? Because the Holy Spirit superintended the process and taught them what they were to say and brought to their remembrance all that Jesus said. And we have it faithfully written down. So the Bible itself is all God's very words. It carries His divine authority. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. Every chapter, every paragraph, every sentence, every word in the Bible, in the original manuscripts, of which we are highly certain we still have in our modern translations, all of it is no empty word for you, but your very life, because it's God's word. Now, we have to ask a further question about that. So, okay, so the Bible says about itself that it's God's word, but so what? How is that proof of anything? Don't we need external confirmation from some outside sources? I mean, if a person said, I'm the greatest chess player in the world, we would be able to evaluate that by seeing the record of how many tournaments have you won, how many, who, who are the people that you've beaten. We would be able to have our own separate outside assessment of their claim that they're the greatest chess player in the world, right? So where's the external confirmation of this Bible's claim that it is God's very word? How do, we, how do we know that? Well, there are plenty of external confirmations that we can look to to say this is a, this is a reliable document. So we can look at archaeological and historical evidence that the places, the names, the events that the Bible talks about are real. We could point to the millions of lives who are changed by it for the better, and as it's described in the Bible, you will change if you believe these things. We could point to the reliability and the number of ancient manuscripts that our modern Bibles are based on, which are orders of magnitude more plentiful and closer to the original events than any other historical documents we have from ancient times. Thousands, some of them dating only decades after the original events happen. We, we, just based on manuscript evidence, there is tons more on the Bible than anything else from old times. We can point to things like that outside the Bible to confirm that it's the authoritative Word of God. But here's the deal. None of those external confirmations is sufficient to prove that the Bible is our very life. And that is because only a completely truthful 
extraordinarily wise and divinely authoritative source can render a decision on this Bible. <laughs> and the only source that exists is the Bible in that category. Everything else is suspect. Everything else is suspect to is subject to human error and bias and lack of information. And so only the Bible, if it in fact is the Word of God, can prove itself, which is what it does. It says it is. What that means at the end of the day is that you and I have to accept this book as God's authoritative word by faith. We each have to come to it with a submissive heart that says this book is no empty word for me or anyone. This is our very life. And I'm going to trust it and build my life on it. Now, you may have questions about it. You may struggle sometimes to believe that. You may have doubts. But you have to come to the place where you settle the matter. And you accept by faith that this book is the truth by which you will live, what you will stake your life on. I remember a time when I, was, when I came to that place. During college, I was a very new believer in Christ, and my faith, my new faith, was tested. I went to a, a summer Christian program, and part of the deal was you had to get a job, and I could not find a job for the life of me. Weeks and weeks went by. I couldn't find a job. Needed a job in order to pay for the program, and the program's almost over. And every day, I'm out walking the streets for eight hours trying to find a job, and I'm getting super discouraged, and I began to think, what if all of this is fake? What if I've joined a cult? Seriously, I started to think, is any of this even real? So I sit down in a park. I get on a bench there. I open up the Bible. And I'm just going to read something here. And Lord, you didn't have to show me if this is real or not. And I didn't want to turn to something complicated like Romans. I just went to Proverbs. I want something easy. <laughs> and so I start reading Proverbs. And I'm looking in Proverbs. And, I, and I'm seeing the descriptions there of the wise and the fool and the cause and the effect relationship between actions and results and, and about the temptations that we face and the goals that we want. And it just hit me that all of this just makes sense. This accurately describes the world. This diagnoses the problems. This provides genuine solutions. This is truth. And that was enough. I settled it right there. And I don't think I've had any serious doubts since. In fact, only grown more confident. We have to come to that place. It may not be a one-and-done event on a park bench. You may have to wrestle with it. You might have to read some helpful books. You may need to talk with others about your doubts. But peace and confidence and strength will come when we settle in our souls that this is our very life. And this is God's very word. Nothing else is. Now here's some encouraging news, though. It isn't entirely up to you to come to that place. <laughs> because the scripture says God himself will help us get there. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, We impart this, meaning we impart the thoughts and the words of God, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. 
You see, the Spirit of God Himself will teach us the truth of God's Word as we come to it with humility to receive it. To receive it. He helps us to see it for what it is as our very life. There's, there's a connection. There's, there's this subjective but very real and convincing awareness that what I'm reading here is not just man's document. This has a divine origin. The Spirit teaches us that. If the Spirit's resident in your life, part of His ministry is to teach you the things of God so that your soul says, yes, this is true. And every aha moment that you have, when you're reading in your devotions or when you're hearing preaching, every time a light bulb goes off and you go, I get it, that's the Holy Spirit. The Bible in all its parts is authoritative in our lives. It's no empty word. It's our very life. That's the conviction that we hold as elders of this church, that all of the Sovereign Grace churches hold. And it's out of that conviction that we formulate all the doctrines that are in our statement of faith. Because if the Bible itself is not reliable, then nothing else that we say is reliable either. There's got to be an anchor. There's got to be a fixed point. There's got to be a rock. Otherwise, it's just everybody's opinions. So our conviction, everything in the statement of faith begins with this word is our life and we don't mess with it. We try and figure out what it says. We may do that well, we may do that poorly, but one thing we do know is this is where the answer is and we're not going to just make things up. So that's what led to our statement of faith and that's how we think, that's how we all have to think. Before we leave this point, I just want to say something by way of application and to express our pastoral burden for you as your pastors. And it's a conviction that, that this, this conviction that this is the authoritative Word of God, we know that that's going to be challenged. We know you're going to be challenged. We know that you're going to be tempted to move away from that conviction and believe other things. And that's because the Bible teaches some things that are just offensive to many people, and you will pay a price for believing and acting on them. What it teaches about man's sin and guilt is not popular. What it teaches about Jesus being the only way to God is not popular. What it teaches about things like gender and sexuality is not popular. You will pay a price for believing it and living according to it. And when you pay that price, it will challenge your conviction. You will wonder, do, do I or do I not really believe this thing? Will I actually order my life around it? Or will I say, no, that's, that's too hard. That can't be right. That gets me into too much trouble. We know that you're going to be challenged. And so that's why we need to settle this. Is this God's very word? If we don't believe that, we will drift. We will abandon it, and many have. I watched a documentary recently that really brought this home to me. It's called American Gospel. 
subtitled Christ Crucified. There's two documentaries by that name, American Gospel. This is the second one. And in that documentary, you will hear from several popular evangelical authors as well as former evangelicals who deny that Jesus died on the cross bearing God's wrath for sin. That's the central doctrine of Christianity. And they deny it. But wear the label Christian. How did they get there? By denying that this Bible, in all its parts, is truth. Because if you take out one little part of it and say, well, that isn't right, then why can't you take out more parts and why can't you take out the whole thing? Once you go down that road, there's no stability anymore and you can end up anywhere. And where they've ended up is Jesus did not bear God's wrath for our sins. That's not a gospel. The gospel is we have sinned and we do deserve wrath. But Jesus bears it for us. And that's what makes him a glorious Savior. That he would go that low and take, take blame that he didn't have. And punishment he did not deserve in our place. So that we might be forgiven and be counted righteous. And be accepted by God and have eternal life. That's good news. That glorifies God. That glorifies Jesus and so to remove that, you might as well throw your Bible out. Because this Bible is about that. So I just want to say, without the conviction that this is God's word and your, and his, and your very life, you are susceptible to going down that road, and I know people who have, who at one time believed everything you believe, except not really. So I just urge you, settle, settle this conviction. <laughs> um, don't become like Galatians 1, 6, and 7, people who deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You just have to believe those people are in the world and they are in the church and they are writing books and they have blogs and you need to be careful. But I won't end with that warning. <laughs> Just like the writer of Hebrews, who said after a strong warning in his letter, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, <laughs> things that belong to salvation. And that's the note I want to end on. Here's the last thing Moses said about God's word. By this word you shall live long in the land. By this word, you shall live long in the land. This shows God's heart for why he wants you to trust and obey all of his word. He wants to bless you through it. He wants you to live 
long in the land. For Israel, that meant the promised land across the Jordan. Trusting and doing His words would bring real-time benefits. They would have wisdom for day-by-day living. They would be fruitful in their land. They would reap the benefits of doing things the Lord's way. They would experience the nearness of God. They would see the promises of God come true. So that's the immediate application of what Moses said. But this living in the land has a fulfillment beyond the land of Israel. It ultimately looked forward to the blessings of all of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. By Jesus, the word made flesh, you shall live long in the land. You will have real-time benefits now in this life. And you will live eternally in the ultimate promised land, which is the new heaven and earth. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So to trust Jesus as Savior is to enter into eternal life. It is to have a qualitatively different life right now, one in which you receive wisdom for living, you get comfort in your affliction, you see promises fulfilled, you have needs met, you have hope in your trials. But it also reaches the soul-satisfying fulfillment in a renewed world without sin and sorrow and without death. There is life after death for those who trust Christ. We will indeed live long in the land, the new heaven and the new earth. We will live by the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So, friends, do yourself a favor in 2021. Take to heart all the words of the Bible. They are there that you may live. (laughs) And they are your very life. And it doesn't always feel like it. Because there is a a suffering aspect to it. And some of that suffering comes because you walk according to this word. But we have to believe that the God who said these things is true. That everything he says is truth. And that it is the way to life. So do yourself a kindness in 2021 and take it to heart. Um, Don't let the Bible become a book that sits on your shelf that you consult once in a while. You wouldn't do that with a bottle of prescription drugs that you're supposed to take every day. This is that important. This is that important to your soul. This is how you form your convictions about all the things that matter. This is what shows you the way to live. And so pick it up. Have a plan. Go to the e-bulletin link. It's got links to reading plans. Um, So read it and ask God, show me your glory. And he will. Show me this is real, like me sitting on a park bench. I mean, if your heart is open to that, he's going to answer that. So read it. Keep attending the meetings where the word is preached. Don't sign off 
and just sort of skip it every Sunday. Even if it's Zoom, you're hearing this. You're hearing God's Word preached. Do that. Keep attending your discipleship groups. We're talking about it there. We're encouraging one another in it there. We're strengthening each other in the faith. Be there. And you'll experience the blessing God has for you. It's no empty word for you. Indeed, it is your life. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we need you to even put this conviction in our hearts, and I pray that that's what you do. There are those who already had that conviction, and I pray you strengthen it. Um, others, not so sure. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would also open their eyes to it, that the Holy Spirit would do that. Um, I pray conversations happen as a result of this, where questions and doubts come out and, and answers are given and the body strengthens one another. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody you know, on this call who's new and, and this is all new to them, uh, Lord, I pray that they would also get a Bible and, and begin to look at it and, and just see, are you there? Is this real? And that you'd show yourself to them. We thank you that it's for our life, that you're totally for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Dan. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. Thy flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul the soul that